my father didn't like it, the the uh, unrealistic way of doing it. So that's why he started putting cameras in the planes and shooting the uh, the actors in the planes. There'd be a pilot, a real pilot, that would take the plane up in the air. They would use two cockpit planes, and the actor would be in the second seat. And then the uh, the pilot would duck down, and the actor would turn on the camera in front of him and play the scene. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. He wanted wings and to be the one calling the shots on a movie set. And in a big life, he got both of them. William Wellman Jr. talks about his father, Wild Bill Wellman. And it's been a year of silent comedy streaming in lockdown. We talked to Ben Modell and Steve Massa about the silent comedy watch party on its first anniversary. In the meantime, don't miss this example of how homemade media links you with the whole big world of vintage film. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice and never miss an episode. If there's one good thing to say for the last year of lockdown, it's that at least we had streaming to help us get through it. I'd never have made it without classics on Criterion Channel and old Warner Brothers movies on HBO Max and so on. But big streaming services with big studio movies aren't the only ticket in town. We're in a new era, when archival films can reach us just like Stranger Things or The Crown. Festivals like Portnone, the Bronco Billy Festival, and Noir City all played in our living rooms this year. And then there's the silent comedy offering from a living room, Ben Modell and Steve Massa's Silent Comedy Watch Party, which will celebrate a year of slapstick comedy with live accompaniment on March 21st. I spoke with most frequent guest Ben and merely regular guest Steve from New York. After a year of this, does your wife just want her living room back? Uh, well, I think we both do to a certain extent. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I got to a point uh, at the beginning of February between the watch party on Sunday and teaching my class, where I live stream and live accompany all the films for my students. Uh, uh, that's on Wednesday, and then I usually have at least one other stream. It, I, I, there was no point to breaking the show down physically every week, and so we have this. It's like you know having uh, a clothesline, you know, set up in your living room with wires and, and yeah. things standing around. And, I, and I'm sure that, you know, Steve and Susan are tired of shoving that dresser back and forth that you oh, see yeah, behind yeah. him. I, I mean, it's, it's yeah. our bedroom, you know, so yeah. I tried to disguise it. I guess I could just do a digital background. Yeah, we could but, do that, yeah. That's, that's something else that's like, no, I'll just move everything around. Yeah, literally... 
a, exactly a year ago today. I mean, I, I found a video on my phone uh, from from a year ago today where I did a test of the pan from the wall to the piano to see <laughs> to check the 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 camera placement. I'd forgotten that I used to have in the spot where we project uh, um, a a lithograph that my parents gave me of a Hirschfeld drawing of Walter Kerr, which used to hang over the piano. Mm. And for the first two or three weeks, I would take it down. We would do the show. I put it back up, and Mana after two or three weeks, Mana said. Just leave it down because we're going to be doing this for a while. <laughs> well, the the uh, pilot, I was there. You know, I came over to Ben's apartment. Right, right. I remember that. It was the that. last time. Yeah, and we changed seat. You know, we you we were know, yeah. We, we stayed out of each other's bench, way. We took yeah. turns and we stayed. You know, separate. But after, you know, a couple of days after that, oh yeah, nobody was going anywhere. No, we did the th the pilot on <laughs> Sunday and on Tuesday. It was like everybody stay home. And I had Don't to figure, okay, yeah. then, okay, how do I bring Steve in? And I came up with this crazy device of having <laughs> him get on on his, his iPhone. And I had a little tripod, mini tripod stand for an iPhone. And we put Mana's phone on it and plugged the speaker into it. And we had, you know, Steve in what he calls his zombie box. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it was great because it reminded me of, of old kid shows where yeah. there's a character who's in a box or something <laughs> and they say okay let's go talk to Ziggy yeah. there was somebody on yeah. Captain Kangaroo that they used to go to and he was on a screen mm. so, did it know, get all wavy of... as we went to see Steve oh yeah. no yeah that would that, that would be an extra effect where I have to have Mana pour olive oil on, on the lens and yeah. yeah nobody minded everybody really was <laughs> just happy to see it it was really like 1949 television. <laughs> it really was. It, you know, we're all, uh, we're all we're, trapped is, at is, home. Yeah, we're all trapped at home. It's like, oh, COVID rules. You know, everything, everything, <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no rules anymore anyway. So, you know, one thing I was wondering, I mean, to a certain extent, the supply of silent comedy is basically inexhaustible. But, you know, you've only got access and rights to so many things that you've released through Undercrank and so on. Um, did a point come where you just ran out of that stuff and where are you finding more more films no. to show? No, we, we didn't run out. What, what happened was once we had this sort of proof, proof of concept aspect of this show after the first <laughs> couple of weeks, uh, I reached out to uh, Dennis Doros and Amy Heller at Milestone and uh, Serge Bromberg at Lobster and Rob Stone at the Library of Congress, and uh, you know, people were 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 remarkably cooperative and and happy to help out. And then it just continued like that. Very generous. Yeah, Nelson Hughes uh, and I think it's Michael Oz has you know who have bought files from the Library of Congress, which anybody can do and has been able to do for decades. Uh, you know, wrote us and said, "Hey, you know, I have these DVDs that that I, of stuff that I've got." You're welcome to use it. And then Rick Sheckman said anything you want from his collection. So it's yeah. it's been remarkably uh, great. Be I think everyone gets that this is not, it's not like before COVID times where it, well, it's a show and I have to get paid and, you know, how much are you doing this and how many yeah. seats is it? And it's like, we're, this isn't an entertainment. It, we're helping people get through the stress of what's been going on for the last 12 months. Yeah. Everybody. I mean, Ben's talked about the private collectors and uh, people like Surge, and you know, but the archives too. I mean, we we get things from the iFilm Museum. Oh gosh, Russell yeah. Russell Cinematheque 
is coming up. Uh, the Danish Film Institute. Everybody's just been very generous. It's like, oh yeah, and they go, and they make a big effort to send us files, and and you know, it's 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 you know, been really it's sort of, moving. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, I think everybody realizes that we're all in this together. And, and you're the only show it, in it, COVID town. Well, it does. It does. It does. There's a there's a couple others that are that yeah. are that are doing what we're what we're doing. Uh, but uh, we're we're on we're on every week since March of tw- yeah. March of, of last year, and uh, but it's it really it's it's been really nice to see, uh, and that 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 people are sh- oh yeah sure uh, here's a, do you need a file for this or yeah and that sort of thing. Um, I know you did a show. That included films from uh, the Laurel Laurel or Hardy set that's mm-hmm. coming up. So yeah, yeah. Well, we were lucky with that. In that, uh, my my mo has always been from day one. We don't want to compete with anything that you currently have in release. We don't want to stream out. You know, the new restored Blu-ray. We'll run the older version that was released 15 years ago and is out of print that nobody's even remembers to some extent and then tell them to go on air go buy the new blu-ray but with with the mm-hmm. laurel r hardy set they're like oh no we'll send you files of the restoration it's just watermark it i know how to do that uh and ev- every time we think oh well we still you know we have a a, a decent sized catalog from a di- bunch of different people someone else will say oh yeah. i have this and this let me know if you need anything yeah that's happened repeatedly where people contact us yeah. about material they have. You know? Yes. Now, Steve, you're usually do, like setting some context for the films. Um, you're able to find, you know, some of these oddball things that come in. Are you able to find stuff every time to talk about? Oh yeah, I have no problem. Talking <laughs> oh gosh, about no, no. Yeah. I mean, we've done a few. You know, I always kind of put together bullet points. You know, things that I want to make sure that I talk about. But we've done a couple of shows where we had technical issues. We had to throw on a film, and it's just there's plenty to talk about. Oh yeah, there was there yeah there was one where something had locked up, and yeah. oh it was, it was when there, you know this is the thing I've learned about how YouTube works. You know people say oh blah blah and uh, YouTube yanked this and YouTube this and mm-hmm. there's a system and an AI an algorithm that's built into YouTube that that grabs things that are under copyright. And there was an issue when we showed The Bank with Charlie Chaplin, which has been PD for practically ever. But there, you know, the Big Brother may be watching, but it's Big Brother is often Mr. Magoo. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and so what happened with that is that some uh, outfit in France had uh, listed it uh, on their large database of things that they controlled. And it got yanked, which was a surprise. So uh, I knew Steve could vamp. And so I said... Well, why don't you talk a little bit more about whatever we had just shown? And I'm frantically connecting to other hard drives in the apartment yeah, just, wirelessly because yeah. I knew he, I knew he could fill. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I found I went through a hard drive. Oh, here's something we haven't shown since like the second episode. Copied it over through Wi-Fi, loaded it into the software, and I said, "Hey, Steve, why don't you set up uh, um, uh, the two Johns?" And I knew he would know exactly what to say because it's one of our favorites and something we showed on the second episode. And then away we went. And while he was setting it up, I finished loading it. And then then we showed <laughs> and we saved the show. <laughs> Plus, there's nowhere you can go to demand a refund. So, yeah, that's well, right. yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. 
There was somebody online, I don't know if it's on Facebook, and somebody was complaining that we haven't shown Ben Turpin or we haven't shown this person and this person. And I was kind of like, well, what are you beefing about? It's free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, really? Come on, well, I mean, we'll show... You know, I mean, you always kind of have to wait for your favorites, right? Anyway. Yeah, but it, it, everybody, you know, uh, likes <laughs> to see certain certain things. And what's what's interesting is uh, because we've had this weekly presence and a direct connection to people, uh, uh, and there's this level of fandom, for lack of a better word, where there's a certain kind of uh, ownership that people feel about uh, yeah. watching the show. Th- um, that you might not do if you do a show somewhere once a year or two or three times a year. But we're 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 running movies in people's laps on a weekly basis. So, um, uh, and because we seem to have access to so much stuff, like hey, why aren't you showing this or that? And I don't I don't blame people. Yeah, yeah. There there is a rhyme and reason to the way we're programming stuff, and it's some of it's a little haphazard, <laughs> but I'll, but yeah, a, a, some of it's not... by by design as well. Right, so it's and it's not like, oh, just because it's on YouTube, it doesn't mean that we can show it. Like I'm trying to, if the Laurel and Hardy shorts are on YouTube, they're there illegally, and I know the person <laughs> who controls the licensing on that, and I'm not going to stick wrong again on the show, uh, because I, I, I don't, I, you know, it's you know when people write in, why aren't you showing Laurel and Hardy? The answer is there's those films are controlled. I think another reason that people have really been so generous and responded is that we we do we are above board. You know, we ask for permission and we yeah. we ask for the rights and you know, can we do this and we ask. So it's not like we're just taking things. Yeah, which is what you know, which is what archive.org and YouTube are and sometimes it's both. Like somebody will th- I just had something taken off YouTube where the person who had posted it didn't realize it had come from my DVD, uh, but somebody had up, ripped it and uploaded it to archive, and that's where they got it. So, mm. you know, once somebody file shares something, it's just out there. But I, I try to know where things came from and, and clear it best I can. Well, now you talk about getting a certain amount of feedback from the audience, and you know, one of the, I was thinking. So often when I've talked to you about a film, or, you know, it's been well, and I play, I've played for this a few times, and it always goes over really well. You know, like I think that was one of your selling points for the Douglas McLean films, right? And so, you know, you don't have anybody in the room besides you know your <laughs> wife, yeah, and, and Steve on the line. So, yeah. do you get feedback in a way that means any you know means something to you? Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. I mean, I go, I uh, we go on Facebook and especially Twitter. I I mean, we get a lot. I get a lot more feedback on Twitter than any place else. And uh, you know, you can't hear people laughing, but we get comments and and emails. It's a fraction of the number total of people who watch the show, but we get a sense like uh, of you know we were talking a few moments ago about why aren't you showing this? But there are things that we've shared that have blown people's minds. Like what we've shown one Winda Wiley film like almost a year ago, and people are still asking for her, and that's why we're running a Wanda Wiley short on the anniversary show. She made such an impression on everybody. Huh. Yeah. All right, so we all get vaccinated. We're all allowed back in the world. You're, you're playing back at MoMA. Then what? Is this going to keep going in some fashion? Well, I think one of the things that Steve and I have talked about is the fact that, and this happened, again, right from the beginning, is that there are people 
who we've connected with, who've gotten to see these films or discover them or get to see them with live music and with Steve's intros, who don't live in a city or county or country where there's an art house where they'd see it at all. Right. And as much as that's why I didn't want to do this before last March, because I wanted to encourage people to leave their house and go to a cinema, we, we've, uh, we, there are so many people for whom we are the only place they can see this that you know, com- completely stopping, I think, uh, is, not, is something we're not going to do. Yeah, no, I feel the world has changed, and this kind of thing is, you know, it's, it's a new medium. It's like DVDs mm. or, or live shows. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason that these can't coexist, that you can't have live shows, and you can't have the streaming shows, and you can't have DVDs. They can all exist together. And I think that gradually we will probably, because I may start getting bookings, uh, to go in, you know, outside of my apartment and go into a movie theater to sit at an actual somebody else's piano, um, we may uh, gradually roll out uh, doing the show twice a month instead of every week, uh, and, and and on and on like like that. Um, but we we won't know until we see where everything is going in terms of the numbers and safety and yeah. and masks and and all you know because cinemas will reopen but not at full capacity so you know not not everybody's going to get in to see the show anyway I mean we're going to have that problem when we when we start up the Silent Clowns film series whenever that is is it's a two hundred and fifteen mm-hmm. seat auditorium but we're we're probably not going to be able to and we always fill it we but we're not going to be we, it, so. but what well, we're not probably we not who comes right. in you know right so we're, we're so it's going to be a long rollout for everybody <laughs> um yeah one thing feeds into the other and, and i think yeah. another part of of what we're doing with this show which is something that we implemented or i implemented from the beginning is there's an informality mm. about the show um we're not trying to make it look like an in-cinema show but on on your computer. And, and it, we try to make it feel like you've come over to our place to watch old movies or we've brought our projector over to your house and we're just hanging out. Yeah, no, it, to me it's it gets back to that initial way so many of us discovered these films was, you know, on a wall in a pizza parlor or a church yeah. basement or something. Yeah, or if you knew a collector or, or, or right. buying stuff in, you know, in Super 8 or borrowing it from a library. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, on it's, TV it's, with a host who would give you a little bit of an introduction. Yeah. You know, like Herb Graff in New right. York or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. What's been interesting also is uh, we've done two things. One is that we've expanded a lot of people's uh, knowledge base of, of silent comedy film. Not just, you know, Mana and Susan have seen more silent film in the last <laughs> year than they have in the in entire combined years they've been married to yep. me and Steve. Putting up uh, with us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but but everybody else has gone beyond, you know, the big three or four or whatever. Or whatever. Um, but also... We've also been able to share uh, some some of the knowledge that each of us has picked up. I think one of the things I like about what Steve shares is that, you know, uh, I think in, I don't know if, Steve, this is because you yourself were an actor for many years, but the, everybody you see on screen has a career arc. And then nobody worked in a vacuum. Like, this person didn't just work with Charlie Chaplin or this person didn't just do... Keaton shorts, but everybody worked together and is part of this huge yeah. network of, of performers. Well, a, you know, it's what I refer to as the, the 
they make up the fabric of the silent comedy universe because yeah. they worked everywhere. And I, I do think it does come, you know, from my previous experience as a performer. All that's very important to me. Who worked with who and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's such a great thing about old movies. I went through a, a phase last year where I could not watch a movie without Matt McHugh being in it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, and with me, like, if you if you turn on TCM during the week, during the day, you will invariably see Hank Mann or Leo White or Billy Bevan in the back doing a character bit in yeah. in some film from the forties. You know, yeah. But our our the anniversary show, um, it's uh. We have we have a few surprises that we're working on, but in terms of the film programming, um, we're we're going back to the beginning and we're running something that I ran on the pilot and on the first episode, which is a Hank Mann comedy called An, An Eye for Figures, which um, I won on eBay, which had a replacement main titled uh, A Ragtime Romeo or something like that, which of course. Steve then identified. Well, it was, and they said it was Bobby Dunn too. I think so. Yeah, yeah uh, it but it's like, probably no. Yeah, that's Hank, and it's probably the only print that exists at the moment that we know of. Uh, so, and we showed that on the wall. You know, the first eight weeks of the show, we had an iPhone pointed at the wall in our <laughs> living room, and then I switched over to this great software called Mimo Live that allows me to feed uh, the signals straight to the audience while it's still being projected so I can watch it while I play. Um, so we're going to rerun that. It'll look sharper for everybody. And we're also going to rerun an animated cartoon that we showed on the second episode with Coco the Clown uh, called The Fadeaway from a very sharp print that I have. And then, um, like like I mentioned, Wanda Wiley, who, who we showed once uh, maybe during the summer, and people have been asking, so we're going to show... Uh, a thrilling romance. I mean, Steve could talk a little bit more about. Well, we're going to show. Actually, we're going to show uh, Queen of Ace. I'm sorry, that's right. The we, thrilling romance yeah, the, is the one we already ran. Yeah, thrilling yeah. romance we showed and everybody yeah. loved. And Queen of Aces is great. So we haven't shown yeah. that. So that's that's sort of the new film we're showing uh, for the fifth. Yeah, it's really yeah. Thrilling. So that's yeah. So I yeah and. Um, I, I I would encourage anybody who is hearing this before we uh, have the show on the twenty first to uh, watch live with us. Um, just if you haven't seen the show live, to have that experience of what it's like to visit with me and Steve and Mana and Susan and Crystal and Marlene and everybody who is you know it's it make it a point of viewing and, and join us when when it actually happens. That was, needless to say, Ben Modell playing for the Silent Comedy Watch Party. The first anniversary show will be this Sunday, March 21st, and it can be seen live every Sunday. Past episodes are on YouTube. Links for all of them will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Ever read this book? 
A lot of people have. I couldn't put the book down until I'd finished it. The Oxbow Incident is the thrilling, dramatic story of the Old West and its fabulous characters as they really were. Say, that's silk. That's how I know you're a bootlegger. <laughs> you win. I wouldn't presume to teach you feminine psychology, but I might add, very humbly, of course, yeah. That if a woman is asked to do something, she's more apt to obey than when she's commanded. I didn't ask you for any lip. I asked you if you had a drink. I know, Tom, but... Well, gee, I, I wish that... There you go down wishing stuff again. I wish you was a wishing well. So that I could tie a bucket to you and sink you. I'm sick of being hungry and cold. Sick of freight trains. Jail can't be any worse than the road. So give it to me. Before you lies the most glamorous city on earth. Hollywood, California, a city where men and women skyrocket to fame or plunge to oblivion. What happens amid the glamour of such famous gathering places as the Ambassador Pool, the Trocadero on the Gold Coast of the film city, at the Brown Derby where famous stars meet, or in the gay setting of Santa Anita Park? Ladies and gentlemen, announcing the battle of the century, Carol Lombard versus Frederick March in Nothing Sacred. Yeah, yeah. Let me sock you just once, just once on the jaw, and I don't care what happens. I'm awfully worried, Roxy. You're worried? Listen, my lawyer goes out of town on a vacation. My agent, whenever you want him, you can't find him. So in 10 days, only one little scoop of a story and no pictures. And now this. You can figure for yourself how I feel. There's that war again. Sounds like that page of me. Oh, pray, go on, let's share, miss. Honest, Rainbow, this hurts me more than it does you. I'll be back. Don't worry. One by one, they boarded the plane. The most bizarre group of people ever thrown together by fate on the most exciting adventure that ever spanned an ocean. Yes, the kind of color with which William Wellman, who gave you the high and the mighty, paints vigorous new personalities on the majestic canvas of the high Sierra's drifting snows and shifting shadows. For here are people with every emotion bared, tossed together in a wind-whipped wilderness, prisoners of the storm that rages about them, captives of the human storm that wells within them. Nobody ever nodded off in a William Wellman movie, says Scott Eyman. And the big emotions and excitement of his movies was matched by a big life that started with dogfights over France and led to a Hollywood career where he took a sock at more than one producer or movie star. A story told by his son, William Wellman Jr., in his book Wild Bill Wellman, Hollywood Rebel, which came out in 2015 and is now out in paperback from University Press of Kentucky. Bill Wellman Jr. began his career as an actor under his dad's direction and has gone on to nearly 200 TV appearances on everything from Gunsmoke and the FBI to Beverly Hills 90210 and CSI. We started by talking about his career under some famous directors. First, I wanted to ask, so you're, you as an actor, you were first directed by your father. A few years later, you are directed by John Ford. Which one of those was more terrifying to you? Well, my, I was used to my father. See, my, I mean, my father was a taskmaster with 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 me and and all the kids and everything. But we loved him, you know. Uh, so I was used to being directed by my father. <clears throat> so I didn't have that problem where a lot of actors did when they worked with my father. 
But when it came to John Ford, now I, I didn't know John Ford. I knew who he was, of course, and I'd seen his films, and I, you know, I respected and admired his work. But when I had a my first interview with him for the Horse Soldiers, you know, I said to the receptionist when I arrived that, you know, was I supposed to get a scene to do? You know, and she said, no, you're just going to be interviewed. And um, when the time came, I went into this room, a large room, and Ford was sitting at this big desk. And over in the corner was John Lee Mayen, the writer. Over in the corner, standing like, trying to pretend like he's not in the room. It was really weird. So they had the chair set up where the prospective actor sits, so close to the desk that my knees are touching the desk. That's how close the chair is. And Ford is just on the other side in his chair. You know, and he's got the patch over one eye and all that, and I'm sitting there, and he says to me, do you like horses? I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I, horses are fine. He says, so you like horses? I said, well, yeah, we, we've always had horses on our property. My father liked horses, and I've been riding since I was five years old. He says, well, then you do like horses. I said, <laughs> yes, I do like horses. Okay, that's it. You can leave now. <laughs> and I thought, what the hell kind of an audition is this? And I, I, you know, I got up and I left. And I called my agent and I said, you know, that was the worst audition I, I've ever had. <laughs> All he wanted to do was know about ho- if I liked horses or not. So the agent called me like a day later and said, well, Ford, you're on the picture. You're on Horse Soldiers. You've got six weeks on it. And I thought, what? What am I doing? He says, you're the bugler. There are two buglers. You're one of the buglers. And I thought, boy, this is unbelievable. And so I go off to Louisiana and Mississippi, where they shot most of the exteriors for the horse soldiers. And it was just, and the first day on the set, the first time I see Ford when I'm down in Alexandria, Louisiana, and we come out we come out in a big bus and we're all the writers and stuntmen and you know and some of the actors. And we we get out of the bus and Ford comes up and I thought, Well, I guess we're gonna get our welcome to the picture and he said, I just wanna tell you all something. There's no actors in this movie. They're all writers. And he turned and walked away. And I thought, geez, that was nice. <laughs> so, and the next thing that happens, I, I had a habit of when I worked on a show, if I wasn't actually in the scene or, or preparing, for, I kind of st- stood around somewhere near the director so I could kind of watch what he was doing. So I did the same thing on this on the set of, of the horse soldiers, and we're out in this in this woods area with a big raging river and all this, and I'm standing somewhere near, and I'm just happy. Jeez, it's a beautiful day. I'm I'm going to be in this John Ford Western, and I'm kind of whistling, 
and all of a sudden he turns his head around and looks at me and all the work stops the setup of the camera and everything is everything stops and my whistling goes <laughs> it stops too and everyone's looking now everyone turns and goes back to work and i thought what the hell is the deal and uh, the, the script supervisor comes over to me and said bill don't whistle around the old man i said don't whistle he says no don't whistle don't laugh, don't sing, don't do anything unless he instigates it. So I thought, geez, you know. I, so I stopped standing anywhere near him after that because I figured I wanted to last for six weeks right. on this picture. <laughs> uh, and and I really had no no conversation with him until one day the assistant comes over because every day Ford would have a table set up and have tea. And he would invite the people who would sit at the table. And, of course, it would be John Wayne and and uh, some of John Wayne and John Ford's cronies would be sitting at the table. And maybe one or two of the actresses, Connie Towers, I remember, she would sit there and have tea. And also Althea Gibson, you know, who was a great tennis star and was making a, a kind of an acting debut. And one day, the, the assistant says to me, Bill, you're, you're sitting uh, at the table for tea today. And I thought, I don't want to sit there. <laughs> I don't know what's, you know, I don't know what's going on. So I wander over there and sit down. <clears throat> and the, people are being nice to me, you know, and, and Ford is not talking to me too much. And I'm just kind of mostly shutting up and listening and not, not speaking out too much. And then I think it was the same day we did a scene where the, the troopers, we all come in, lined up, you know, on horseback, and we dismount, <clears throat> and we're waiting there. And Ford all of a sudden starts running. Well, he couldn't really run, but trotting up the line to me. And he stops, and he takes off my my little trooper hat and throws it on the ground and stomps on it and then puts it back on my head, you know, all dirty and everything. And he says to me, stop shaving. And then he leaves. <laughs> and I thought, well, the point was that at this point, these troopers are not shaving, you know, yeah. but I was shaving. I didn't know better. <clears throat> I'd shave when I'd finish work just normally. So, of course, I stopped shaving. I wasn't going to do that again. And that was the first time that he spoke to me. And then and then now I have a scene to do. And he, he called me uh, Young Young. That was my name. Get Young Young, he'd say to the assistant. And I'd come over. Well, I was young, but... And he said to me... Uh, you stand here, and when the troopers come over, and it's kind of going on, and I can't understand, and I, I couldn't understand what he said. And then a, a wrangler came up and gave me the reins to a horse, and I'm standing there, and I'm thinking, well, I guess, and he starts the scene. And Wayne is in the scene, and Wayne is saying to, you know, he's dismounted, and he's kind of motioning, keep, keep it rolling, keep it rolling, and all the troopers are... Stand, are walking their horses, holding the reins, walking their horses by John Wayne. So, and I'm standing there waiting, and I'm thinking, well, 
I guess I'm supposed to, I don't know when I'm, I knew I had lines. I, I knew what the lines were, but I didn't know when I was going to say them. And there were two other actors on either side of me. And all of a sudden, one of the actors started talking, saying his lines. And so, okay, so I figured, well, I, I'm not, I don't do it now. I, w- I must be next, maybe. And then I started my lines, uh, and then I stopped because the other actor on the other side of me, he started talking. And so I, then I waited, and then I, I was third, and then I started talking, you know. And uh, that's, that's the way it was. You know, I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> and Ford, he didn't like to, you know, if you look at his movies carefully, any of the younger actors, they always act like, uh, what do you want me to do? You know, where should I go? You know, <laughs> yeah. that's how they act, because they don't know. He's not telling them. He wants them to not know what the hell they're doing. And it was really difficult. Uh, God, I tell you, the, what I loved, William Holden was the greatest guy. I really liked him. And he, he just, he didn't want to put up with the bullshit, you know, of John Ford's unit. And, and because he caught some of the flack too. So this one day, Ford is sitting there in his director's chair and he stands up and he's looking at the river and whatever he's doing. And I'm somewhere nearby, not too near. And he yells to the assistant, get Holden over here. Well, William Holden was sitting in a chair, not 25 feet away. (laughs) So the assistant walks 25 feet over to Holden and said, uh, Mr. Holden, the, uh, Mr. Ford wants to see you. And Holden, as he stands up from his chair, he says, I heard him. And he walks over and he stood right in front of Ford. And he, with two fingers on his right hand, he stabbed him into Ford's chest. And he said, don't you, if you ever do that again, I'm going to pick you up and throw you in that river. And he just stared at Ford. And Ford kind of blinking and, you know, and then Holden walked away. Uh, he wouldn't take the bullshit. You know, <laughs> I love that about him. And he did that a few other times in, in similar situations. But Ford just, you know, and I started thinking, people used to compare my father with John Ford on the set. Forget about it. My father never acted like that. I mean, he was intense, but he also was, you know rather respectful to people. Um, yeah, he seemed to Ford want a collegial just, set. Yeah. He, uh, Ford was just unbelievable. He said to me, uh, one of the, when, once we got back to Los Angeles and we shot some little pickup shots around, around Los Angeles, to fit into to what he had shot in Louisiana. And there was a scene <clears throat> that he said to me, um, we're shooting out, where the heck were we? Somewhere out in the valley. And it was a scene, you know, that would have been part of, of one of the battle scenes. And he, and I had the call. I was there on the set. And he called me over. He says, get Young Young over. So I come over and he says, 
He says, I want you to get on that horse, and when the trooper gets shot, you know, I want you to ride in and dismount and dive under that cannon and say your line, you know. I said, okay. So I get on my horse, and they start the scene, and uh, the other actor, the trooper, comes, he gets shot, and he falls under the under the cannon and I come riding in and I dismount as fast as I can run over there, practically fall down, you know, and I ask him, I say, uh, are you okay, Lieutenant? You know, something like that. And he says, yeah, yeah, whatever he says. I says, okay, sir. You know, and I get up and I go back and I get on my horse and I ride out. And when I can't, when Ford says cut and he says, young, young. And I come back, walk over to him and he says, Good job. And that was the that was the only compliment. That was the first compliment that I had gotten from him in all the weeks. And the next compliment was he asked me to come on How the West Was Won. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> His next picture. Yeah. So it was the strangest thing. Oh, you'll like this story. After after the horse soldiers <clears throat> uh and I, you know, I figured I should keep try to keep in touch with Ford, and I started doing television westerns. And I did have Gun and Gunsmoke and Rawhide and all those. And I had done a, a lead, a guest lead in a in a half gun. And when I knew it was going to play, and I I knew where Ford lived. I I'd never been to his house, but I knew where his house was. And I used to send out these little. Uh, announcements, you know, when I was in a show, I'd send them to casting directors and producers and, and all of that. And I had one made up for this particular have gun and I put it in his mailbox. I never heard from him. And my father was going to the director's guild for some meeting and he asked me to go with him. And I said, sure. So I go with my dad to the director's guild and we walk in the door and there's Ford. And uh, my dad looks at Ford, and Ford looks at him, and they were kind of buddies. And they kind of converge on each other. And I'm standing behind my father, and they're talking about, my father called him Jack, you know, and they're talking about something. And then uh, we turn to go into the theater for a screening. And I'm kind of trailing along. And Ford turns back to me and says, stop writing me. <laughs> and then he goes back in <laughs> so you know it was just the weirdest thing <laughs> my relationship with him was I don't yeah. know what now he also got, had me go on Sergeant Rutledge right so he kind of wanted me around but uh, you know he never gave me anything really important to do Anyway, he was he was something, and I I think I used to talk to people that I ran into because I I do uh, I do some western shows now, not now because we're in a pandemic, but I do I do western shows uh, at at festivals and things, and I ran into some people that had worked for Ford, and it seemed to me that he was getting more cantankerous. Yes. As time went on, and I happened to catch him at the end of the line, you know, he was yeah. not this bad early on. <clears throat> well, let's 
let's talk about your dad. And uh, though yeah. we, I could talk about John Ford all day, but talk about your dad too. Um, the uh, so his early days, you know, in in high school. I mean, he was not to put too fine a point on it. Kind of a juvenile delinquent, one of those kids who had, you know, more energy yeah. than it was good for him, and. I guess becoming an aviator in World War One made some sense. Becoming a director from that is something I think none of his teachers would have predicted back then. But uh, no, you've got it perfect. What you're saying is is perfect. You know, he was a kind of a juvenile delinquent. Um, I I wouldn't say that it was all his doing, but you know the way where he lived. In in the Boston, just outside of the Boston proper, um, he had to. They, he and his brother, who was 16 months older, they had to cross through uh, neighborhoods to get to school. And there were, you know, Irish and Italian neighborhoods, and and a lot of times they had to fight their way to school because people didn't like them coming into their neighborhood, uh, the other kids and all, and. Uh, and he had fights in school, and he became a prof- professional ice hockey player, and then he could fight on the ice. You yeah. know? <laughs> so he was he was used to fighting, and he for for a lot of reasons that weren't necessarily his begin his starting, you know, something he started. And then he went to war, and and that had to be like hell. He was shot down. He had six major air crashes during the war, and. Uh, pretty rough beginning of life you know the first 18 20 years of his life was not easy and and thereafter it seemed that he always he kind of always wanted to fight you know it was always in the back of his mind if he had a problem with somebody he was ready to deck him i think you know one of the most one of the phrases that kept coming up talking about his flying was he'd been told to make only one pass, but he decided he could fly over something five or six more times, you know, while they're, while they're shooting at him the whole time. And that just didn't ever seem to put him off. No, no, he, he, you know, you can, you can see the whole, uh, background that he went through. I mean, he was not afraid of anything. Or anybody, and uh, you know he he was he was a renegade pilot. Um, that's just the way he was, and and he was very successful at that. You know he doesn't. It's really hard to find out all the credit that he deserves for his uh, flying in, in the First World War because. There's so many books, and I've read them, but they don't tell everything um, that happened. Because I've, you know, when my father was alive and I ran into some of his old flying buddies, you know, they told stories that are not in books. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, you know, it's it's hard to know. All of those pilots uh, should have gotten more credit than they received. Yeah, no, I thought that was interesting you point out that, you know, no one's exactly paying attention to what other people are doing. So if you got credit for a kill, that was, it was just sort of random good luck that you got credit for it. Yeah, you had to have somebody on the ground 
And of course, if you're fighting in enemy territory, there is no nobody on your side on the ground. Right. And everyone, the other pilots are involved in a in a dogfight. Maybe they're they're trying to stay alive themselves. They can't be worried about what the rest of their their compatriots are doing. <clears throat> so it's tricky, you know. And that's why they had that thing about you had to sh- shoot a plane down and land your plane and go up to the downed aircraft and pull off the insignia, the German insignia, and bring it back to your headquarters. You know, well, I mean, how many times in a dogfight are you going to, you shoot down a plane, are you going to land and run over to that plane? <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you're still up in the air. You're not, you're not coming down on the ground. You, again, you're looking for the next uh, opponent, so to speak, or trying to stay away from one. All right, so the uh, he's in the Lafayette Escadrille, comes back sort of not certain what what's going to be a civilian career after, after that adventure, and winds up in the movies. How'd that happen? Well, it happened because he was playing ice hockey. He was kicked out kicked out of high out of uh, out of school out of high school and he was playing ice hockey uh, in the Boston arena and Douglas Fairbanks who was a star of stage at this time he wasn't in the movies and he came and he was doing a show in Boston called Hawthorne of the USA at the Colonial Theater in Boston and he liked ice hockey so he would go and watch the ice hockey, and he—I guess he was—he loved the fact that my father spent so much time in the penalty box for fighting, <laughs> and he wanted to meet him. So he introduced himself to my father, and also invited my father to come and see the the show he was doing, and they ended up getting a little a little friendship while while Fairbanks was in town, and Fairbanks said to my father. I'm going to Hollywood to get into the movies. And if you ever want a job, look me up. So, you know, a lot of time passed, but now my father's in the service, and now he's actually uh, out of the... He had been sent home because he was shot down and wounded, and now he's a flight instructor down in San Diego. And he reads in the newspaper that Fairbanks, who's now a, a famous movie star, is having this big party on a polo field. A lot of those people played polo. It was a big sport in those days. And my father thought, you know, it's about time. I've got to figure out what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So he got in his bad aircraft and flew up and landed on the polo field. <laughs> you can imagine yeah. it. You know, and the horses are, the polo ponies are skittering all over the place. And, you know, and my father gets out of the plane and he, he walks up to Fairbanks and all of the, you know, it was full of Hollywood stars. Charlie Chaplin and, geez, all major stars were at this polo party. And my father must have made a hell of an ent- entrance. And he went up to Fairbanks. He said, Mr. Fairbanks, do you remember me? And Fairbanks says, I remember you. You're Wild Bill. Can you ride a horse? My father said, well, I've ridden a lot of other things. I've never ridden a horse, but I could learn. And Fairbanks gave him the young lead in his next 
movie, which was a, a Western. And that started my father in, in show business as an actor. But he really didn't like being an actor. You know, and he told the director, you know, I, I don't really, I don't really think of myself as, as being an actor. Uh, I'd like to be a director. So, I mean, then he, then he had to work his way up to be a director and, and all of that. So uh, it was pretty amazing life. Well, yeah, there's that great story about uh, General Pershing coming to the studio. Yeah. That <laughs> plays such a role in his becoming a director. Um, but right. it's, it's so out there. I mean, what an, what an old Hollywood story. I know. I know. And it's so true. I mean, you know, he uh, just the way the way I wrote it was the way my father told it and the way he wrote it. Uh, and it was pretty amazing. Well, and, tell, and it, t- tell me the, the Pershing story, you know, in, in short form, just so I don't leave people hanging as to what it was. Well, well, what happened was <clears throat> my father had gone to a, uh, uh, a kind of a, a nightclub uh, slash brothel, which they had in, in Paris. And he was there in like the living room where you waited until the, the gal came downstairs and then you went upstairs with the gal it was, the, was the sort of procedure. And in comes, my father noticed, Black Jack Pershing coming in the door and sneaking upstairs. <laughs> There's some, some gal up there. And my father thought, you know, this would be a hell of a good idea. Uh, and he snuck up the stairs after a while and started peeking in the rooms, trying to find the room where Pershing was. And Pershing was in the room, and he was, you know, in bed with with one of the prostitutes. And my father sneaks into the room and stole his pants <laughs> that were lying there, and then and left the room and went back down to the to the living room area. When Pershing finished his work, he can't find his pants, and he's yelling. You could hear my father said you could hear him yelling upstairs. God damn it! Who took my pants? You know. <laughs> And, he, and my father goes upstairs with the pants and walks up to, to Pershing there in the hallway and says, Mr. Pers- General Pershing, I think these belong to you. And Pershing was, you know, overwhelmed <clears throat> and uh, remembered my father, because that was just, my father did that as a joke. But he he remembered my father uh, when he came to tour the studio, the Goldwyn Studios, in what the early 1920s, I guess, uh, something like that, late late teens, early 20s, and he, my father, was there dressed in his uniform because the the head of the studio said, anybody who's been in the service, I want you to put on your uniforms and be there to represent our studio and your time in the service and to meet general Pershing. So my father was there and here comes Pershing walking down the line. And my father said, general Pershing, do you remember me? And he explained 
the pants. And Pershing got was laughing, and he took my father out of the lineup and over the and talked to him separately from the rest of the group and wanted to know how he was doing and you know all of this kind of thing. And then Pershing made a big thing about telling the head of the studio and uh, that you know that my father should get every opportunity to become a director and blah blah blah. And it worked. And that's how my father got his first job directing. I mean, it's it's just, you know, the stuff is so far out there that you'd think if you just wrote this down, no one would believe you. Right. <laughs> you made this stuff up. Because it's just incredible. All right, so he directs some uh, fairly routine pictures, and then he gets his chance to do his, his uh, the movie that really only he could have done, which is Wings telling the yeah. real story of the Flyers and shooting it in a way that was true to their experience in the air, which had not been done before in Hollywood. No, it hadn't. In fact, there'd only been, you know, the government did some films uh, during the war. Uh, they shot some films, and then some of the very early silent films had some sections in there where there was flying, but you never saw the pilot in the plane. And during Wings, my father got the job because of because he was the only aviator under contract to Paramount at the time. So he he got the job, <clears throat> and he was going to make it real. And so he got together with the cameraman, and you know they devised the whole the system for photographing aerial combat. Uh, was was done in wings for the first time and they had to strap cameras to the fuselages of the planes and show the pilot in the plane and it took a lot of uh experiment to to figure out how to do it because those planes they shook so much you know the winds buffeted them i mean they they were never smooth uh and so that made the the shot the the film shot the shot looked really disor- it made you disoriented so they were trying to figure out how to how to do it and all that happened during the production of wings yeah until they finally figured out and they also shot the pilots but they they couldn't shoot them in the air except to some extent they had to do more so they they figured out a way to shoot them on the ground as if they were in the air. They'd have the camera kind of low so you'd see sky, uh, you know, on the pilot, and they'd have wind machines, and they, you know, they did the best they could. But mostly they they had to just say, my father didn't like it, the, the uh, unrealistic way of doing it. So that's why he started putting cameras in the planes and shooting the uh, the actors in the planes. There'd be a pilot, a real pilot, that would take the plane up in the air they would use two cockpit planes and the actor would be in the second seat and then the uh, the pilot would duck down and the actor would turn on the camera in front of him and play the scene uh, i mean this was the first time this was ever done it was unbelievable and if you look at the film you you believe that they're up there and they're flying the planes well they they had to fly the actors had to fly the planes for a while because the the real pilot was ducked down, so they had to take lessons and learn how to do it. So it's pretty amazing. Wings was a big hit, and then um, surprisingly, 
there wasn't really it didn't seem like they gave him opportunities to follow up on it. I mean, he delivered such an exciting experience that people liked so much, but then he's back to kind of routine work and that that seemed to be kind of the story of his career that anytime he'd have a breakthrough role, you know, kind of run of the mill stuff would be forced on him after that. Well, to some extent, but with Wings, you know, he did Legion of the Condemned. See, he did another aerial film right after that. Unfortunately, it's a lost film, but I'd love to see that because I got a feeling it was really a terrific film. Um, and that that came because of Wings. But then again, he was a, a, a contract studio director, and they weren't just going to make aerial films, you know. So, you know, he got back into doing the films that they they gave him the script and he made the picture. And when he left Paramount and went over to Warner Brothers, uh, the same thing. But he but a little different. He was able to bring scripts in to to the the head guys and say, you know, this is what I want to do next. And they did let him do some of those films. One of them was Public Enemy. Right. That came to my father before the studio knew about it. So he did get to do some films, but you also have to understand another thing. My father was not going to get pigeonholed into one kind of film, you know, like a lot of directors did that made, let's say, mostly comedies or something. My father wanted to make every kind of film. So he was happy with a lot of the films that they gave him, particularly at uh, Warner Brothers. You know, he liked to do the gangster films, and he did, uh, you know, all sorts of films. And he loved that. Yeah, so Public Enemy, another one that was just a really a big hit and influential. I mean, I think in a lot of ways the strongest of the early gangster pictures just because Jimmy Cagney is so fantastic too. I mean, yeah. it just comes to life so much in that in that one. Um, yes. And then, you know, you talk uh, toward the end of the book about how he wasn't appreciated later on, and I feel part of the reason for that is because it's such a strong period of his work in that pre-code era at Warner Brothers, but you didn't see those films for a long time. They were, you know, they were not on TV. They were infrequently revived i mean i don't know that yeah. anybody ever showed heroes for sale or wild boys the road anywhere that i've you know went to see movies you know film society or anything like that no not to, not till tcm uh, right. came along yeah but you know he because you might think i'm prejudiced because of my father but i also am being as honest as i can i mean he was a, really a special filmmaker and he had a great eye for picking stories. And when he, when he was at Warner Brothers, he started more and more of, of, of making the films that he brought to the table, you know, and, of course, thereafter. But, you know, pictures like The Oxbow Incident and Battleground and Story of G.I. Joe and all up to The High and the Mighty. I mean, these are films my father, you know, he chose those films. Uh, so he knew, he knew what to choose, but it doesn't mean that every, every choice was, was, the, was a good one right. <laughs> because there were films that he made that he loved that no one else did. So it was just one of those things. But the point is 
my father had such energy as a as a director that you know he was making them one after another you know he was not going to sit there and spend you know a long months and months trying to get the film made you know he would he my father would move to something else he might go back to it you know with a film like uh well star is born yeah that was a film he had wanted to made make a lot earlier but no one was interested at the time but he would go back to it and and until he got it made and he did that with a number of films that he really cared about yeah, I think about you know that late '30s period. I mean, it had a good relationship with David Selznick. You know, I mean, that's a great run right there. Star is Born, Nothing Sacred, Beaujest, and they're nothing yeah. like each other. Yeah, you see, my father could make any kind of film, and if you if you take his films genre by genre, you'll find two or three or four terrific films in every genre. You know, he really could do it. But if he, you know, sometimes I think, well, if he was a little more like George Stevens or William Wyler or even Billy Wilder, uh, they didn't rush into making one after another. You know, they, they were more careful about the projects that they wanted to do, and they took more time to do it. My father just had this unbelievable energy, couldn't wait around. You know, he couldn't wait around, so he'd go to something else or something else. And he he loved the idea of going from one film to another, to another, to another. He loved that. <laughs> so it, it, in a way, it was it, it, it caused him to make some disappointing films. But then again, that's what he loved. He was not going to be happy sitting around pushing one film for months and months. You know, he wasn't going to do that. Yeah, one I really like in that period is Roxy Hart. I think it's, you know, it's got that screwball feel, but it's also got that cynical edge about, you know, as a Chicagoan, you know, cynicism is our our, our local sport. Um, so it just gets that so well. I mean, that's another really strong one in that time. And there it is. I love know. that. Yeah. I mean, it's That's same, a wonderful film. Yeah, and it's the same year as the Oxbow incident. I mean, again, could not be more different. <laughs> For sure, yeah. No, that was a, that was a great film, and uh, Ginger Rogers was so wonderful in that. Uh, I met her <clears throat> when I was playing golf with my father at Bel Air Country Club. Uh, this is many years later, and Ginger Rogers was played a lot of golf, and she was on the the next fairway over and my father started yelling across the fairway to her and she was yelling back and then (laughs) you know he went running over there and they were hugging and just laughing and just having such a good time and i i loved that 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 my father had that personality yes he did fight with some stars but the ones that he liked I mean, you wouldn't believe, if you saw Gary Cooper and my father together, you would not believe your (laughs) eyes. Because Gary Cooper, who my father really started in Wings, but Gary Cooper was more of a, you know, a little quieter, less extrovert type, and uh, a little more unsure of himself, 
uh, when he's out with other people kind of thing, had more of a, a, a shyness about him. But my father could run into him and go and start slapping him on the back and get him to act like a fraternity brother. They'd be jumping around and telling stories and, you know, he could bring that out of people uh, that weren't normally that type of person. He he just, my father had such, you know, God, he had such energy. It's just unbelievable. The way he walked, you know, he never walked slowly or, you know, he walked fast. When he was on location sh- scouts and he was looking for one location and they'd be walking to... He'd be leaving everyone behind. No, no one could keep up with him as he was looking for the next location. And that's just the way he was. That was his personality. Another star that uh, he worked with a lot, um, you know, someone I think of as, you know, the consummate professional in old Hollywood was Barbara Stanwyck. Well, that, she was his favorite. Yeah. Number one. I mean, and he wrote that and said that. That was his she was his favorite. See, he liked the women that were could hang with the guys. You know, uh, they weren't so caught up with their their makeup and their hair and how they dressed. And you know, Stanwick would just sit there and tell dirty jokes with anyone. You know, I mean, <laughs> she was, and Carol Lombard was like that too. And 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 there were others that could just hang with the guys and and. Uh, it was wonderful where the where the the gals that were so you know caught up in themselves you know my father didn't get along with them that well you know the one story i i, I think i tell it in the book about marine o'hara and and i i i was a big fan of marine o'hara's movies she was the queen of technicolor i mean she was beautiful with the red hair and the blue eyes oh my god she was gorgeous and when my father did Buffalo Bill with her and Joel McRae, and Joel McRae was, was a real friend with my father, but my father had trouble with Maureen O'Hara. And I didn't really know about this until I was doing the documentary on my father, Wild Bill Hollywood Maverick, because I wanted to interview Maureen O'Hara. Uh, I wanted to do a, a film interview with her because I was having trouble finding women who had worked for my father. And uh, I had met her brother, and I set it up through him and sat down uh, and had lunch with Maureen O'Hara and her brother. And as a kind of breaking the ice, I had a, a little picture that was taken when I was on the set of Buffalo Bill, and I'm only like uh, eight years old. And they dressed me up like Buffalo Bill Jr. They gave me a, I had a mustache, <laughs> you know, and I dressed, you know, like like Joel McRae as Buffalo Bill. And I'm Buffalo, they called me Buffalo Bill Jr. And I'm sitting on Maureen O'Hara's lap in this photograph. And I gave it to her. And she was laughing about that. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you know, would you do the uh, interview on the, the documentary? She says, you know, your father and I, we, we didn't really get along. Now, this was the first I had heard of this. And I said, really? And she said, well, yeah, because he didn't like the fact that I, I really cared about, 
you know, looking my best. Uh, and he didn't like the fact that I didn't eat much at lunch, you know, and, uh, you know, and I kind of kept to myself and, and all of a sudden I could see the writing on the wall. That's not the one, the type of woman my father liked. Uh, he respected her as an actress, but, you know, so I realized what the deal was. And uh, then I started getting a better idea of the actresses my father liked and the ones that he didn't like as much. But Maureen O'Hara was, how much better can you get, you know? Yeah, yeah. But he wasn't going to work with her again. (laughs) Well, now, it's interesting, you know, you talk about that, and then I think about, you know, his courtship of your mom, who was a... uh, a dance, you know, a chorus ma- chorus girl in Forty Second Street. She did Gold Diggers at Thirty Three and a whole bunch of pictures with Berkeley. Yeah, and then he's he's flirting with her there on the set, and she's kind of demure about it. It's like you know, and it, well, he's in the middle of getting divorced at that point anyway. So, um, in any case, she doesn't quite seem like the type that he liked in movies, but it must have worked. Well, on Well, she actually was the type. She was she was a little spitfire, you know. She she was a little more quiet and 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 you know. But she she had she had a, a, a she she had an attitude about her. She she could be tough. Um, she could hang with the guys, you see, on Wild Boys of the Road. <clears throat> and uh, that's right. She gets kind of the the equivalent of Louise Brooks in Beggars of Life in Wild Boys of the Road. Then she gets that part. Yes, yeah. My father dressed her like Louise Brooks from Beggars of Life in in uh, Wild Boys of the Road. Um, that was that's a that's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Wild yeah, Boys no, of I, the Road. I, I think that's, that's, that's maybe his best talkie. It's just, it's terrific. You you know, it's just great from every standpoint. And uh, it had a mixed box office uh, when it first came out. When it was reissued, it it did far better. It, it, the, the more times that it played, and I started seeing it in film festivals in, in the, in the 1990s and 2000s, and now people were just ecstatic about it, just loving it. Uh, well, you know, we get far enough away from prohibition and all those problems so that people saw that as sort of a movie storyline, but not something they didn't really feel the, the uh, weight of it happening to them. And I think maybe it was a little too much for people of that era. Yeah, I think to see what they all went through, because they had all gone through it too. No, I think that's uh, true, and it's yeah. true of Heroes for Sale, which is another one of his best films from that era. I mean, it's such a picture of all the travails of the Depression for for oh, a veteran, yeah. no less. Um, but yeah, not not a cheery cheery picture, no, <laughs> by any means, no. And it was funny, it was interesting that uh, Warner Brothers with uh, Wild Boys of the Road, you know, I think they previewed it, and it didn't preview well at all, and they started to make want to make changes, and 
happy endings and things like that. And my father was fighting against it, but he couldn't, you know, it was their picture. Um, you know, he, he didn't like some of the changes that they made, but still, it was still a tough, hard bitten picture. Yeah. You know? Well, and that seemed to happen a lot. I mean, it happened on Lafayette Escadrille in the 50s, which was his attempt to do another kind of version of Wings, um, but got softened well, by yeah, the studio. Well, more than, yeah, more than Wings, though, the Lafayette Escadrille, which my father called it C'est la Guerre. You know, when he, when he wrote the story, it was C'est la Guerre. But this was different than Wings because this was about all the guys that he flew with and and the woman that he fell in love with. See, she's based, the lead woman in Lafayette Escadrille is based on his wife who was killed uh, during, during the war, the First World War. And uh, so it was, a, it was a very strong picture to my father. And he had tried... To get that made, I think the first time was at Paramount, you know, and they they didn't want to do it. Then he tried again with, uh, let's see, Selznick, you know, in in the 30s, and he tried it at MGM in the 40s, and you know, no one wanted to do it. Finally, because of the success of the High and the Mighty uh, at Warner Brothers. Uh, in you know in the 50s that they were willing to let him do it because they had made so much money with the high and the mighty and also island in the sky and you know the pictures that he made for them that they were going to let him do it but the point was they weren't going to let him do it the way he really wanted to do it and he didn't realize that at the time but the picture is should be a tragedy that's the way he wanted it where this main character played by Tab Hunter uh, is killed. Um, but the studio, Tab Hunter, who was a star at the time, and they felt like his audience, his teenage girl audience, would not, would not accept him being killed. They would be angry. So they stuck a happy ending, made my father do a happy ending. And I mean, the whole thing just fell apart. First of all, my father wanted James Dean. That was his, his choice for his, his script called C'est la Guerre. And Dean was killed uh, in an automobile crash before my father met with him. And then my father wanted Paul Newman, who was under contract, Warner Brothers and Paul Newman was not happy with the with the films that that Warner Brothers was giving him. I mean, if you if you've ever seen the Silver Chalice, right, <laughs> which is a pretty bad sword and sandal movie, and 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 Newman hated it and and took out an ad in the trade paper apologizing for it. And Warner Jack Warner was mad at Newman and he felt like he needed to put him in his place so that he'd just go ahead and do the movies that he wanted him. To do so there was that friction going on and uh, Paul Newman you know uh, had a meeting with my father and it and that meeting didn't go all too well uh, I guess Newman had a problem with my father and yet my father liked Newman uh, 
and he, I remember him saying, you know, he's kind of a maverick rebel guy, and I, I'd love to have him do the role. But Newman was, you know, didn't want to do it, and Jack Warner wouldn't let him do it because he put him on suspension for not doing the films that he wanted. So that ended that. So now my father doesn't have a star, and he interviewed, which is... I tell it. I tell it in my book, uh, and it was just so amazing that the Jack Warner talked my father into using Tab Hunter. Now, my father liked Tab Hunter. He used him in a picture called Track of the Cat, and he liked him. You know, it wasn't that he was totally against him. He would rather had James Dean or Paul Newman, but he he was ready to settle for. And again, this is my father's energy and and his impatience you know not wanting to wait any longer you know the picture was ready to start and he didn't have his star and so he just told the assistant director he said look just you know i haven't had time to cast a movie just line up get a bunch of guys and bring them to this little parking lot at at the warner brothers studio that was right next to my father's office and they at the this was very last minute, and they just kind of went around the the studio lot and any any young guys that they saw that were there hanging around or working in 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 a in a television show or something and and were available, they brought them to this parking lot and there was you know as I say thirteen fourteen fifteen guys they rounded up and uh, my father <clears throat> walked over to them and he had a, a a list of the names of the characters that were going to be in this movie. And he started talking to them and casting them <laughs> on the spot, you know, uh, which was just kind of amazing. Now I was there uh, because I was going to play my father in the movie. And that's another story. But anyway, I'm there. So I see, I see this happening and I see this one actor, you know, the other actors are crowding to get up in the front of the line to be closer to my father. And the one actor's kind of hanging in the back, and he's one of the taller ones. And and my father said, uh, why aren't you up here in the front? And he says, well, I don't know. I He says, well, what's your name? And he says, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> now, no one knows Clint Eastwood. You know, he was under contract at Universal and hadn't done much of anything. And my father says, well, you know, uh, tell me about yourself. And he started asking him, talking him, asking him questions, you know. And he said, have you ever, have you ever uh, played football? Because the character that he would be playing was a football player. And Eastwood says, yeah, I've. Yeah, I played some football, and he's just kind of going on like this. And my father says, come up here. He says, walk over there. I want you to give your name to my secretary. You're playing the part of, uh, I forget the name of the character. You're playing that, you, you got that part. And Eastwood was just absolutely shocked. And he walked over and gave his name, you know, and he picked uh, Tom Laughlin to play the other football player in the movie, uh, who became Billy Jack, uh, you know, and that's how he cast these people, you know, he just cast them like that, 
he he'd say, uh, "What do you have for breakfast today?" <laughs> and the actor would say, "Well, I had uh, scrambled eggs and bacon." He's, my father said, "Do you like scrambled eggs and bacon?" He's yeah, I do. That's why I had it. Give your name to my son. You're playing the part of so-and-so. If he, he just wanted to hear them talk, and he cast a picture that way. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I couldn't I, believe it. I, I'm watching this go on, and I'm thinking, God. But, but my father had an eye for casting people. And he, throughout his career, he cast people who were unknowns and gave them, you know, really good roles Hey, Robert Mitchum in G.I. Joe. Yeah. You know. And Lafayette Escadrille, he's probably thinking of guys he had known. And if you kind of match that guy in his head, then you could yeah, play I think him. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. That's what he, that's what he did. Yeah. Um, now, as you say, he's, he, you know, there was a time he wasn't particularly well-remembered. I mean, he was still around. I mean, some of the directors, I feel, got forgotten because they just died too soon, like Victor Fleming. You know, died before people started interviewing directors. Your father was around, but he really wasn't appreciated properly till you say Kevin Brownlow and Richard Schickel really mm-hmm. kind of yeah. Gave he it. got the they people picked up on him. See, he he was so upset with the this Say uh, Laguerre film that ended up being called the Lafayette Escadrille because it was truncated from what my father wanted. See and. And the picture that he did after it, which was called Darby's Rangers, which my father did not choose that picture. That was in order to do the Lafayette Escadrille, my father had to do a picture for Jack Warner, sight unseen, whatever script he gave him. And my father thought Darby's Rangers was just a very pedestrian war film, nothing special. And my father kept trying to to infuse something into the picture that wasn't there, that wasn't in the story, to try to make it palatable in, in his eyes. And then he just quit. You know, my father just quit, and he... he uh, and then every once in a while, he he came back, tried to make something. <clears throat> He'd find a project. Uh, but, you know, he was over the hill, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, he could have done it, but he he just wasn't... So he kind of went through a, 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 a stage of, of of just of not working or doing anything, and um, and like you say, he was being forgotten. And I I recognized it in 1965, 64. I'm making I'm starring in a movie at Columbia Studios. Winter a go-go, a beach party movie with snow, okay? <laughs> and I'm at the studio doing this movie. And at one time, it was the only movie shooting on the, on, uh, at Columbia Studios. So the, the heads of the studio and all, they had no place to go but to come down and watch us films Winter a go-go. And they had put a lot of their girlfriends in the movie, too. So they, everyone was looking at this movie, and I got to know the head of the studio, Mike Frankovich, and I went to him, and I, I, I said, look, why don't you make the, a movie, my father's movie, about his, his life when he went into the service, and, you know, and I kind of wrote a half, half-baked story, and, 
and Frankovich kind of thought about it and, you know, I kind of thought that might be a good idea. And about that time, other people started, you know, now Turner Classic Movies and television started playing some of my father's films. And all of a sudden people are going, geez, this guy's really good. And I was so happy because I wanted to do a documentary about his life. And I was trying to get that done at the same time. And there was a kind of a reawakening going on, which was terrific, which allowed me to be able to put together my show, you know, and raise the financing and uh, and make it. And we won awards all over the world with that show. And my father was so happy, you know, he used, when I was doing these things and trying to make a, a film about his life and everything like that, he'd say, Bill, what the hell are you doing that for? Nobody cares about that. <laughs> But I'd say, Dad, I care about it. So the first thing that I did was to have a film festival with, I think there was 35 of his films that I got for this festival at, in, in Los Angeles. And, uh, oh, my God, did that's, that really got things going. And people turned out and saw so many of these terrific films that my father made and it, it, it set, it set people on fire, you know, and all of a sudden my father was getting invited to go and do television shows, you know, the Merv Griffin show, for instance, <clears throat> and, uh, and the, uh, Kevin Brownlow put together the, uh, a big festival in England that my father was invited to and all of a sudden these things were happening and it was pretty amazing and my father really did appreciate it you know he finally found that people were caring about his work <clears throat> Merv Griffin had a show uh, it was all about my father and his work in the movies and he had my father on the show and my father was not good at being on one of these interview type shows because he would say whatever came into his head. <laughs> See, he was not going to sit there and, and, and make the proper remark. He was going to say whatever, whatever you asked him, he told you. And a lot of the stuff was, you know, not filmable. <laughs> right. But he, but that's the way my father was. And Merv Griffin loved it, you know, because he said to my father, he says, well, my father, you know, my father used John Wayne, worked for his company, and they they got along great, but they reached a point where they, they didn't get along. So he said that on, on, on the air, on the Merv Griffin show, and when Merv Griffin asked him about John Wayne, my father said, well, he had that fairy walk, you know, yeah. and... <laughs> He's going on like this, and I, I'm sitting there in the, in the uh, first row, and I'm just, I'm just going, oh, my God, Dad, what are you doing? And then they went to a commercial, and I went up on the stage, and I said, Dad, do you really want to say that about John Wayne? You know, I mean, you guys were close. You made great films. I mean, do you really want to go on like that? So my father went, oh, God damn it, okay. So when they came out of the commercial break, 
uh, I sat back down, of course. And my father said to Mer Griffin, I, I think I need to say a little more about Wayne. You know, I think I was a little too, you know, this guy was the greatest star in the history of this business. And he went on with what he really thought of, of John Wayne. <clears throat> but Mer Griffin, you know, he didn't like that. So when he did, a, he wanted my father back for another show. He made me go back and sit in the what they call the green room, sure. where I can watch what's being done. But I, I I'm not on the around on the stage, so I I was nervous about that, and I I tried to tell my dad, you know, dad, don't you know, be careful, you know, millions of people watch this. <laughs> but it wasn't going to make any difference. My father was going to say what he thought. If you want to talk, you know, they talk politics. My father's going to tell you exactly what he thinks. He's not going to do the uh, diplomatic uh, answers. But anyway, but he was great. I mean, my dad was great, and and uh, and he made great pictures. And I still don't think he gets the recognition he he deserved. Although he gets more now than than he did. Wild Bill Wellman, Hollywood Rebel, is out now in paperback from University Press of Kentucky. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Ben Modell, Steve Massa, and William Wellman Jr., and to Jackie Wilson at University Press of Kentucky. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And you know what we haven't had for a while? A new review at Apple Podcasts. Leave us one and help other vintage film fans discover this podcast too. Thanks.